strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right. Welcome. Rock on. Hi, Varun. How are you? What's up? I'm great. You know, you were talking about earlier this call about all the wind and rainstorm we got last week. I have like all the trees, leaves have fallen now. And just after the day, my landscaper cleaned up everything. Like my backyard is filled with leaves again, like in like 12 hours. Yeah, so. same uh, same here. It's like, it's like an, we call it the never ending battle. <laughs> yeah. Never ending battle. All right. So are you excited for today's guest? Because I'm excited for today's guest. We've, we've, he has um, about a list of 150 things to talk about today. So I'm, I'm pumped to get into it. And he's smirking. For those of you watching on the video, he's smirking at us right now because we haven't introduced him. So let me get into it. So he is a chess player. He enjoys some quality dad jokes, which I'm going to ask you one for at the end. So be prepared. All right. I'm ready. Um, He's uh, 40 under 40 at Grand Rapids Business Journal. Congratulations. The PDMA West Michigan board member for, for a number of years. He's Great Lakes Software Excellence Conference Chair for a few years. He's this co-CEO of Atomic Object, Mike Marsiglia. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's great to meet both of you and uh, participate on the show. How do you feel about leaf management? <laughs> I'm feeling a little overwhelmed by it right now. So I'm in, I'm on the Western side of Michigan and, uh, you know, we saw some snow this weekend and I'm looking out in my backyard and there's still plenty of leaves on the trees. So like there, you know, enough leaves have fallen to make a nice base and then the snow fell on top of it. So I'm thinking at this point, we might just have a mess come springtime. We'll have a lot of, uh, grass seeding to do, I guess, is the outcome of that. Usually that's the point For those who don't know, if you don't pick up your leads, there's grass that may or may not grow. So, yeah. wow. All right, back on back on our usual topic. So let's start off with uh, what myths would you like to bust? What sort of misconception, bogus strategy would you like to set the record straight on? What do you want to clear up, my friend? Sure. So one that's always uh, always perked my interest is this idea that designers and developers cannot sell. And I think this is further from the truth. Um, you know, I think so many technical founders believe that in order to be successful, they have to hire a top-notch salesperson. And I think this is an absolute myth. Uh, I believe that talented leaders who happen to be designers and developers um, by trade can effectively sell. So does that, have you, oh, go ahead, Varun. Yeah, does that mean that you don't need salespeople anymore? That's a good, that's a great question. I, I have certainly seen some very successful salespeople, but I've, I've heard of way, way, way more like failed salesperson experiments at uh, consultancies than good ones. And I think it's just, I, I just look at it like as a, as a founder or a leader of an organization, like you're just, you're always selling. It's just part of who you are, whether it's new hires, projects internally, um, you know, new clients or existing clients. It's just, it's just part of part of the job and part of who you are. And 
one thing that really helped me kind of get over this hump was uh, um, there's an author named Daniel Pink who wrote a book uh, to sell as human. And I think this is a great book for any, any technical founder. And in the book, he really, he really unbundles that like buyers don't want to be sold. They want someone to solve their problem. And I feel like as um, you know, talented developers, talented designers, that's what we're really good at doing. We're really good at solving people's problems. And it's just getting over this hump, this misconception of what is a salesperson. And in the book, um, Daniel dives in and he gives this, uh, this idea of, of being ambiverts and how most people are actually ambiverts. And Adam Grant had done some additional work on this. They did a study. So what they, what they did is they, they started polling people and they said, okay, a scale of one to seven. If you're a one, you're super duper introverted. And if you're a seven, you're highly, highly extroverted. And they started looking at how effectively can these people sell, right? And what they found is the ones and twos, not effective salespeople. The people that are really, really introverted struggle, right? But what they also found is the six and sevens were also not effective salespeople. And this is like the complete misconception that we all have, that you've got to be super extroverted to be really good sellers. And the really interesting part about this is like on this introversion, extroversion scale, like the world is like a pretty nice bell curve. And most of us score in that three to five range. Most of us are ambiverts. And that means most of our clients are ambiverts as well. So they're, they're liking to be talked to by someone who has kind of their same introversion, extroversion um, uh, archetype. Do you feel like it has to do with that behavior around the ability to listen? So like you get your wicked extroverted people who are, and again, this is a gross, it could be a gross misconception or some sort of generalization, but the ability to, to process the information on what other people are saying and react to it in a thoughtful manner, you know, listening is a big, big part of selling. Yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've heard the term before that, you know, we have one mouth, but two ears. So we should definitely be listening more than, than we're talking. And uh, yeah, for me, I felt that, you know, when I first started selling, I felt like I, I had to sell someone on something, right? And I became a way more effective salesperson when I stopped trying to sell someone. And to, to your point, Jesse, I started listening more. I started like empathizing with the situation. I started asking myself, what would I do if I was in Jesse's shoes? And that, that really works with people and that really resonates with people. Um, for me, it's all about like, how do you find a win-win? And I just, I just feel that designers and developers, uh, by their nature, by the, the, the types of problems they solve, are really, really good at this naturally. And sometimes they're just scared to do it. How, how has that helped you build your company and your team and your culture? Like how that idea of being a professional or like like technician can also sell has helped you you know evolve in your organization as well i think it's evolved over time so um atomic's 20 years old i'm, I'm not the founder the founder of the company is carl erickson he was very he's a very talented individual and uh um this was just the type of selling he did so i you know, when he needed help, I, I learned by, by watching him and, and picked up on some of these tendencies. And then as we continued to grow, we needed to get more people doing this. And 
at first we really actually struggled to get people doing it. And over time, we, we got better at, at putting a bit of a, a bit of a process around it. And, and the process really ends up being a, a, a pretty simple kind of uh, sheet that we're driving towards where we're always internally asking the question, like, what is the problem the client is asking for? Can you write it down? You know, what are like the three business drivers, not technical drivers, not fun things, but what are the three business drivers that this problem is going to solve? Can I write those down? And then part of that conversation is just reiterating that back to the client, like letting them, letting them hear that they've been heard and that you understand and that like you're on the same wavelength as them. And then I think that gives you the, the ability and the trust to like lean back into that conversation and start making, making recommendations. I also think that um, selling is always interesting in what we do because I think sometimes there's this asymmetry right? Where because we're technical, we know all the ins and outs and the customer's nervous that like, you know, maybe I'm going to get taken for a ride somehow, right? But I think the way to really start breaking that down is to just come back to this concept that I always think about with software is good software is never done. So if we can help you um, figure out how to make good software, like as inexpensively, as quickly, as efficiently as possible, it's going to work really well. And and, and you're going to want more of it. It's, it's the deep, dark secret of custom software. And it's, you know, it's, it's throughout that sales process, it's, it's listening, it's building trust, it's um, leaning on what we're really good at, at designers and developers and, 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 and figuring out a good solution to the problem. Do you feel like, you know, putting your developers, your designers, your engineers in a sales function? I mean, I guess my first question would be, have you done that internally? It sounds like you wouldn't have brought this up if you haven't. Mm -hmm. um, and for those listening, he's nodding. <laughs> um, and do you feel like the word you, you know, or the statement, I feel like the word sales is scary. I think that's mm -hmm. the piece because we all kind of yeah. do it naturally. Yeah. And you know, those, those introverts and the behaviors that we talked about, and we all have this, we, nobody wants to be sold to who, who likes going. I mean, I like going to the car dealer because I usually go in there with more information and I look and see how far I can push things, mm -hmm. you know, but nobody having to sell somebody a car is terrifying to me. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's, it, I don't want to do that. Do you, do you feel like that might be, um, part of you know a misconception in the market around the word sales and that it's it's you know I'd love to hear your that's a roundabout question but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in particular yeah I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up so we don't we don't call it sales we call it pre-project consulting because that's really what it is like um you know, we, we work really hard as an organization to, to, to do a lot of outbound marketing. So we'll get a lot of people kind of warm leads coming to the door. And what our job really is to figure out is, are we a good fit to help? And if we're not, like maybe someone else is a, is a better fit for us. And looking at the world, not as like a, a zero sum game of like, I need to capture all these clients and recognizing that there's a lot of opportunity out there. And if we're going to help- mindset. The abundance mindset. an abundance mindset. mindset. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it's, it's a term that has come up and I've seen it come up in conversation quite a few times. And it's this, uh, especially among some of the agencies that we've talked to too, it's like, 
let's, you know, we don't, let's not hoard, let's find you the right fit because otherwise it's going to cost us more time, energy, and money ultimately to, to mm-hmm. not fill that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, you have, we have a lot of interesting things to talk about. So I want to yeah. kind of move us along in the conversation. Sure. Co-CEO, mm-hmm. give us the backstory there. That's the first time we've heard that title. How does that work? You know, I know you guys have some lofty goals as an organization, but let's, let's start Talk to us a little bit about co-CEO and how that how that works. Yeah, absolutely. It's so it's 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 something that we we kind of moved into over time. So like I'd mentioned earlier, uh, founder of our organization, Carl Erickson, he ran the organization for a number of years, and and me and my partner Sean worked worked very closely with him, um, first running our Grand Rapids office. Um, and then as we grew to different cities, um, like really taking ownership of our Grand Rapids office. And what what happened is as we, as we expanded the business into other cities, um, instead of having a, like a centralized architecture, we did something that's probably a little more inefficient on the surface, but um, I think it's way more robust in the long term. And that is we created this role of a managing partner. So in each of our offices, um, we have not one, but two managing partners. And we learned this over time that like, you know, if, if you have an issue with a managing partner or, um, or there's some hiccup, like it, having just one is not a very robust plan. So like having two um, creates a robustness. It also creates a partnership model. And it also really mirrors like what we believe when we think about our team structure. Like we like to do uh, pair programming. We like to work in teams. So like, why not take that to the management level? So the first place of taking that was to our managing partners. So each office would have two managing partners. The people in the office would report to those managing partners. Um, you know, I'd find that different people, like when, when Sean and myself are running Grand Rapids, um, some of our team members would, would naturally gravitate towards Sean, some to me. And I felt like this was a, this was a benefit of the model. Um, like I think it helped us support people better. Um, we also would work very closely on, on making decisions and sharing the workload. And as we as we moved into the the CEO role, as as our as our founder Carl um, stepped down from that role, uh, we decided that it made a lot of sense to to once again kind of duplicate that partnership model at the CEO level. Um, how it works for me and Sean is, you know, it, it it does require quite a bit of overhead for us to to stay in sync. But I think what it really leads to is it leads to better decisions. Um, it leads to um, less snap decisions, right? Because I can't, if someone asks a question and, and I don't know which way we're going to go with something yet, um, out of respect for Sean, I need to kind of punt on that. Even if, I, even if I'm thinking I know the path we're going to want to go. And me and Sean are similar, but we're enough, we're enough, um, we're enough different that like, you know, every time I'll bring this to Sean, like, oh, I heard this question, this is the way I think we should go. He'll be like, well, have you thought of this, 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 and this? Like, oh, I haven't thought of those things. And it, we can get into a debate and a discussion and uh, we can disagree with each other and we can like shake stuff up and then we can come with a, with a united direction. And that's been really strong for us, really helpful. I think especially, um, especially during COVID or you know, now as we kind of move into the, the great resignation or great reshuffle, like whatever you want to call reshuffle, it. Reshuffle, right? like, I like that better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, these people like, they're just changing, right? Um, so, how many uh, people? Um, how many people do you have in your team? Just so listeners can yeah. understand, you know. So we're eighty-one. Eighty-one, mm-hmm. and so you have like two people sharing the CEO chair, and then under them you have 
hierarchy? Like, how are you set up? Like, I'm trying to understand. Yeah. I can see some benefits to collaboration at the management layer, mm-hmm. but at some point you also said it comes with overhead. So I'm, I'd like to yeah. understand what are those overheads that you experienced and then how did you overcome them? You know, because this is the first time I'm hearing this concept of co-CEO because mm-hmm. there has been the reason why it is not popular, I'm assuming, because people do want, like they, they all management people talk about how there has to be a clear direction of who is reporting to whom so that they can take their own decisions. They can, you know, stay within their own roles and responsibilities and be accountable for things that they do. But when you start merging them, it kind of, I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I, we, I could feel or at least imagine that there could be some gray area for the subordinates people like who am I going to? Am I going to this CEO or that CEO? Right. Yeah. Um, and I can relate to some of that because in our organization, we also have something similar. We have, we don't call it co-CEO, but there are so many roles and responsibilities that we kind of share. Um, but, you know, I would like to hear your experience with that. Like, how do you, you know, how do you work under that model? So some things we do split, like, uh, um, like I'll, I'll, for instance, work uh, very closely with our, our managing partners and Sean will work very closely with our marketing team, uh, for instance. And then other things we'll work together on, right? Like, you know, let's say we're trying to figure out um, what's the future of work gonna look like in our office. You know, let's say we're gonna try and figure out like, how are, where do we wanna change like our, 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 our PTO to be like, right? Where something that's more kind of cultural or cross-cutting, um, we'll work on that together. And what I find so much in, in the job is so much of it's just like clear communication. And uh, that's really the, the pieces that we're working on. So when I say there's overhead, there's overhead in us making sure that we're really well connected and we understand what's going on. Um, now, I think on one hand, you can look at it as as overhead, like, oh, if I was just doing the job, you know, maybe I could do some of these things more efficiently myself, right? Or you can look at it like a lot of these decisions that we're making, like are such are so high leverage that it's really important to get them right, even if it takes a little longer to get there. I like the way that you described it earlier is it forces you to not make those snap decisions because that was going to be one of my questions. You know, as a leader mm-hmm. within any organization, you get it's that's what you deal with all day is, you know. Mm-hmm how about this how about this how about this and in this case if you the the co you know you know where the boundaries are in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways and if you question Mm -hmm. that boundary you know how to be able to take it back and go yo we got to talk about this real quick you know it's an interesting it's an interesting change of standard operating behavior you know Mm -hmm. and i it's uh i could see how that would work quite well within the right organization um I yeah, our, talk- our, our relationship's so important to making it work. And we've known each other yeah. for so long and we've worked together for so long. I don't know how I would feel, you know, kind of coming into it, not having the relationship that I do with Sean. Um, but be- because we've had such a strong relationship for so long and we, you know, <laughs> we know how to disagree with each other and resolve those, those disagreements. Um, we know you know, we know each other's strengths and weaknesses. We know how to, uh, um, how to support each other. Like it's, uh, um, it works really well for us. Sounds like a healthy marriage. 
I pun absolutely intended in that one, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's, it goes down to any sort of leadership team and being able to, you know, those are behaviors that you want on your leadership team and your you want within your executive teams, you know, regardless of the role and the title, it's to be able to communicate clearly and effectively and know when and how, you know, mm-hmm. there's been many a manager I've worked for. And I said, look, is there a better way that I can communicate with you? Um, and, you know, usually it's no, but sometimes you get the like, let's talk about it this way. Or is there, you know, is there a more effective way for us to, you know, but even talking about how to be able to communicate better is an important conversation, especially as we all move to different types of working environments. Um, I, I, I love, I love that. I mean, I've often thought about, and I, and I haven't done this, but I've, I've thought about it. Like, wouldn't it be cool to document, like, this is, this is my leadership style. These are like kind of my core sets of beliefs or values. And I, and I think that's, that's helpful to people. Well, there's a lot of um, various leadership trainings and understanding how you communicate and where you communicate mm-hmm. and how you learn. And even within interviewing, you know, it, it's one of those things that as a manager in the past, candidates would ask, how do you manage? And I'm mm-hmm. like, thank you for asking that because there's a certain type of person who could work for me. And there's a certain type who, you know, <laughs> I am not mm-hmm. the best manager for, you know, I'll put it out there. And so, yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, whether it's agency life or external, it's an important conversation to make sure that you're being, choosing the right environment to be able to excel in, which leads me to my next question. All right. You guys have this unique entity within your organization called the Career Accelerator Program. I, if you can give us a quick rundown on that. And again, I know we have about 1500 things to chat about, but I think this is a, a timely based off our current conversation, a timely kind of uh, unique thing that you you guys do. Can, can you walk yeah. us through that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about six years ago, we were really struggling in this, in this modality of, you know, making the next lateral hire or how to, how to grow the organization through, uh, through lateral hires. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's always a challenge, right? It's a challenge finding the right person. It's finding the right person that's the right fit for the company. Um, I just think in general, like lateral hiring is, is, is difficult. Um, and uh, we started thinking back to like when the company was first founded, um, you know, Carl created the company and he was a professor at a, a local university and he just started it by like hiring some of his favorite students, right? And as we grew, like, you know, when we started developing our value mantras and one of our value mantras is teach and learn. This is my favorite value mantra, by the way, like, but what teach and learn means is it means you have to have like a willing teacher and a willing learner. And and so we just started thinking about this more and thinking about this more. And we started saying, you know, why not try and create the exact experience we would all want coming out of college? And it brought us around to this idea of a, of a career uh, um, career accelerator program. And, and this also this also overlaps with another topic that I think we're going to hit on later, which is we have a goal of an organization to be a hundred year old organization. So having a goal to be a hundred year old organization is a simple goal, but like it, there's a lot behind that. And and one of the things behind that is you need to think long term, right? And thinking long term is thinking like. You know, how, how do we make this sustainable for the long run? So we started, we started brainstorming and we're thinking, you know, how do, how do other service companies that are 100 years old do this, right? And we started thinking about like law firms and accounting firms. 
and they hire in cohorts. And we said, why don't, why don't we try and hire in cohorts? Why don't we build a program that we think would be so compelling that like as a fresh grad, like you'd be, you'd be crazy not to accept the offer into it. And let's build demand for that because there's, you know, let's be honest, there's, there's a lot of people graduating from CS programs. And these, frankly, these aren't, these aren't the people a lot of times that companies want to hire because they don't have any experience, but they're so smart, but they just don't have the experience. So like, how can we, how can we look at that? And the risk is too high and companies need to think about now, 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 now. So like, what if I can think about in a hundred year timeframe? So like, what if I can hire really smart, hungry people now and build a program that can very, very quickly like accelerate their career. And that was the, that was the premise behind the career accelerator program. And it's, it's been wonderful for us. So, you know, getting it going. uh, And this is one of the things I, I wasn't anticipating, but back to our teach and learn is in many ways, like bringing in this, this young, this, this, this less experienced cohort of people, um, really invigorated our senior people as well, because it, it gave, in some ways it gave them more purpose because they had so much knowledge to give them. And like I said, these folks are so smart. And so like when you have, you have this, this, this less experienced hungry person on your project and you, you give them just a little bit of like guidance, love and attention. And then they turn around and they like are producing wonderful things. That's such a positive reinforcement cycle that, um, just builds excitement within the organization. Can I can I ask a little more on that line? Because yeah. we so it's not internship program, right? It's a when you say no, it's real. a program. So you're hiring them for real, you're paying them a salary, correct, with the mindset of we are going to have our senior people invest their own time to train these people and pay them salaries, right? Um, how did that really go? I mean, we, I, I asked that because, and what did you do to make it work? Because we tried that and we failed. We had, you know, our senior people with the same idea, same concept, like, you know, we, we, we hire senior, like junior people at lower salary, get them trained so that they get ready to be more productive and start making money for us, right? But that did not happen because our senior people were already so occupied with the work, with the amount of work that they already have in their plate. And top of that, you have them work with junior people to train them. How did you overcome that? Yeah, so we did it a little differently than that. So the first thing we did is we took um, we took a senior person and we changed uh, his role to be an accelerator manager. So what he's responsible for is he's responsible for uh, at the time, developing the program and now running the program, recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. So like how, how it worked is we would hire, say, a cohort of five people, right? Um, and we would, get, we would get a lot of demand for this program. Like we'd generate maybe 100 applicants, hire five. Um, so they would come in as a cohort and immediately they would get assigned two real projects. Not the same project, different projects. So like they were on different projects within the portfolio. And then they would have special time dedicated to their cohort. So like we, were do, we did, we did uh, certain things around their professional development. So like what uh, our accelerator manager, Jesse, would do is he would facilitate one-on-ones with the, the technical leads on their project. And he would say, the one-on-ones were always the same. 
like when the person would start, it would be all happy, happy, happy. And then about like month three, like the truth would start coming out. Like they're not getting up to speed on this as much as they should. And you could provide that real-time feedback to like start to make some of those um, corrective actions and getting those people very, very uh, productive on projects. Another thing they would do is they would, they would have um, lots of uh, group reading. So basically they're reading about a, a book a month. And at first, when we first did the program, we thought like, hey, we got to bring these people in. We got to teach them how to be great developers, right? Like let's do all this development type, type work. And what we really realized is like, no, like they have all of the skills to be good developers. Like in some ways we needed to like help them like learn and understand how to be good teammates, how to be adults in some ways and how to work (laughs) in an office and all these things. Right. But we're able to like quickly transition a lot of that into like, like leadership type texts, you know? So we'd be reading like, you know, um, books about how to give feedback. We'd be reading uh, um, books about critical conversations, um, you know, things like that. And, and these folks would just, because they're in this cohort, they're also, they also have like this, this, this connectedness together. Um, it, be, it created a really, a really nice thing. And uh, I, think it, I think to do it without having the person who's in charge of running it and making sure that the experience is good for the people and making sure that everything is, 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 is coordinated and collaborated, I just don't think would work. Yeah, that's a great strategy. I think it's worth trying. Well, I was going to ask how many, I mean, you had talked about the size of the, the organization, you know, let's get really tactical for folks listening. Like you're hiring five people, I guess. I mean, there needs to be a level of investment in these folks, you know, mm-hmm. was there, did you find, did you find their, the retention rate of these employees to be particularly high as well? Like what's the ROI there? How about that for a nice question? You know, and, and it sounds like it was in terms of growth amongst everybody within the organization from a cultural perspective, but, you know, could you, um, you know, what, what was the retention rate in terms of how long you expected these folks to, to stick around, I guess would be the question. Yeah. I can give you what my hypothesis was and I could probably follow up with the exact numbers and I can tell you where I think I'm wrong. So hypothesis my, is good. <laughs> yeah. My hypothesis is we'd hire, we'd hire four. Mm-hmm. we'd, we'd have to exit one of them in the first year. Cause they couldn't make it. Yeah. Uh, one would leave at three years. One would leave at five years. One would stay for, for longer. Right. Yeah. And I, and I thought, okay, if we can build a system like this, then we're just always kind of like replenishing, right? Like once you mm-hmm. get into steady state, um, what I found in practice is junior hires in the past that like, you know, where, where I was coming from, where I was just thinking there's going to be some that just don't make it. Um, we ran into some of those similar situations, but I think through the strength of the program, we were able to turn those around. So people that probably wouldn't have made it in the past were now making it through because they were getting the support they needed to get over the hump at a certain point in their career and just turned into like amazing, amazing people within the, within the, within the company. Um, and then we, what we found too, is that the attrition has been very, very low extremely low, lower than I expected. So, you know, because of that, we, we've seen growth in the organization. It's an interesting, it's, I've always often wondered folks coming out of school and transitioning into the, into, you know, I'll call it the real world, but mm-hmm. you know, they don't teach you how to be a good employee. They teach you how no. to do the work, but they don't, mm-hmm. you know, I, whenever I've had junior folks work for me in particular, you know, interns or whatever, it's like, here's what you do in a one-on-one. You're literally telling them what to do during the meeting mm-hmm. that you're supposed to be mm-hmm. having at the moment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. having some of that, you know, 
built-in components is interesting. It's it's also interesting here, and we were talking, so we're based in Massachusetts, you know, you're based in Michigan, but Northeastern mm -hmm. that's based here in Massachusetts is, does, you know, school a little bit differently where they have these, um, you know, semester long, I can't even think of the word at the moment, but similar function where cool. you go and you work as a co-op, mm -hmm. thank you, mm -hmm. programs. And so it's like just, a, for me, that was always a much more attractive way to be able to figure out what you like to do and how to do it. Because by the time you get hired, you're already two steps ahead. It's just a mm -hmm. wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful way to, to approach it. Let, so let me, let me move to our next yep. topic of conversation yeah. <laughs> um, because this is all like so many things to talk about. So one thing that we ask everyone, all the guests is how COVID has changed your business. Now you mentioned about being a hundred year old company. That's your vision. How, mm -hmm. well, I'm assuming that has been for some time before COVID has right. it like now when you're thinking hundred years, I'm imagining COVID may have no impact because your vision is so long, so hot, you know, it's far-fetched. Like, you know, you are ready to do or set up your, you know, base and your company in a way that nothing will make it or break it to stop it from getting to 100 years. But COVID still hit, how has that changed that vision? If it has, if not, how have you overcome that? Just talk us through yeah. you know, how you uh, navigated that. I think when COVID first hit, it, it was something we were able to really lean into and, uh, um, and look at it and say, how do we get through this and protect the team as we, as we get through it? Like, how do we, how do we, you know, first, first look to optimize for everyone's health and safety. And then secondly, look to do whatever we can do to protect everyone's jobs. So, um, you know, like everyone, like I think COVID was a bit of a roller coaster. Um, you know, there's this, there's this terminology that's thrown around like wartime, peacetime CEO, like COVID hits, see, like you're definitely into like, uh, um, wartime CEO. Right. And, uh, yeah. um, you know, you've got the scary novel virus, um, like our, our sales pipeline effectively disappeared overnight. Like we had a lot of projects in flight. People were like, well, we can't do them now. Right. Luckily, um, our, our project portfolio like stayed mostly intact. We had a couple clients who had to cancel projects and we had some clients where there was some fear about canceling projects, but, but they, they were able to keep them running. And I, I looked at that as a, um, you know, in some ways maybe being lucky that we were in the right industries and in other ways, um, uh, I felt good that like, it, it really showed that our, our clients valued the work we were doing. So like, especially kind of the full, end to end product work we were doing, like our clients options really were, you know, pause the project or, or continue on with us because they weren't like staff aug type things where they could just scale back and keep pushing the project forward. So I think that was, that was very helpful. Um, you know, like everyone, we moved remote right away, yeah. uh, in COVID and, uh, you know, me and Sean, like really dialed up the communication we were giving to the company. So we started doing like weekly updates uh, via Zoom. Um, we've always been a transparent company, open books company, but like we wanted to double down on that too. So we started uh, like showing people like cash projections because that was the thing that mattered, right? Like, you know, not only what were we worried about with our, um, with our client runway, but like what was our like past due AR growing like? 
And I wanted to be transparent and show people that, and then talk to them about like the mitigating steps that we would take along the way if we needed to. And, and I think that people really appreciated that. Um, so we worked really hard to, um, to not like furlough people. Um, we worked really hard to not reduce pay. Um, you know, that did mean we, we cut way back on expenses um, and things like that. But like I, like I said, our, our goal was to make it through COVID with the same great team that we had going into COVID. That's and, so awesome to hear that, you know, you had, you did not have to let anyone go and, you know, kept all the people and still maintain the same culture and with the same vigor that you had earlier. And with open book, that's, a, that's pretty interesting too, to have people look at your books and, you know, have that trust from them that, you know, because, you know, as a leaders, as managers, you would hesitate to share your profits and your revenues mm -hmm. and everything. But um, it's really commendable to hear that story from you. Thanks. Yeah, and in, in my experience, I mean, we, in, we all in tech, we all employ such smart people. They're really, really smart people. And I kind of feel like on the open books front, like, you know, if, if things like that aren't open, um, yeah. people are going to invent their own realities and yeah. they might be really, really wrong in one direction or the other. So yeah. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather just be like open and honest with that. And that, that requires a lot of education and, and, you know, it's not, you know, we're not, here's the balance sheet. Let's look through this. It's like, okay, I'm going to build a spreadsheet. That's going to show like week over week cash where our outstanding AR is. And I'm going to talk through it. I want to talk a little bit about your pricing model as such, because um, traditionally, you know, I've heard agencies are either going for, like most of them like focus more on value pricing, right? Mm -hmm. But after COVID, I think things have, we are seeing a little change in the industry because more and more people, agencies are now opening up to hire people remotely and in, you know, um, nearshoring, offshoring, people where they can kind of reduce the cost because competitors are doing that. So mm -hmm. they, to the client, they may still go and be proposing value per pricing and, you know, keep the same rate, but because of the uh, other agencies, you know, cutting down on their costs because of getting access to the low cost, uh, and, uh, you know, people, they have started changing their pricing model as well. So I was wondering if anything has changed for you at all or you're, you know, how are you dealing with that? Yeah, if I understand correctly, um, how, do we, how do we manage like uh, um, uh, price sensitivity um, due to uh, um, other Correct. forces in the marketplace? Yeah. Correct, yep. yes. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, uh, COVID has, I think, made, made uh, clients more comfortable with remote work. Um, I'm interested to see in the long run how, how long that holds for. I think that's a, a story yet to be told. Um, but I, I think so much, so much of your, your bill rate um, depends on the value you're providing. And, and, and that, like, a lot of times goes into, like, how are you how are you plugging into the engagement? Like what phase of the project are you in, right? Um, so, you know, if, if we're working with a big multinational organization and uh, we're working on a project that say is gonna take multiple, multiple years, right? Um, 
you know, I'd probably argue that they're, they're better off hiring us on the front end of that project where we can work very closely with them, be very collaborative, um, you know, set, set the direction, set the scope of that project, and, and maybe then transition the project um, to a, a, a lower cost um, a solution for the, for the subsequent phases um, if they're looking to get a, a cost efficiency there. And then like back to this abundance mindset, like refocus us on the next project. Um, so I don't, I, I look at it like what's in the best interest of the client and um, you know, what's best for the right phase of the project. And uh, um, if we're not right for a phase of the project, I think, I think that's, uh, that's fine. Uh, the, so one, one other thing that you also talked about briefly uh, that you also implement EOS internal yeah. entrepreneur operating system. You want to talk to that, like how successfully or unsuccessfully have you been able to implement that in your team? Sure, sure. So um, when I think about our team, I'm like, what? Well, you know, our, our teams have 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 been have done successful product development for a number of years, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. We have smart people. But I, when I really think about it too, I'm like, there's also like a, like a pretty strong process in place, like our agile or scrum process. And it's a, it's a really nice, you know, set of rituals that the team can go through that can, that can keep them focused and consistent. And, um, and, and it's, it's a really wonderful set of, of tactics and tools. And then when I think about like at the business level, I'm like, oh, we've always been a little more ad hoc there, right? Like, so why is it different? Like we have smart people and we've always been good at like tracking data and trying to make decisions based on data. But as far as like the, um, the consistency and, and rigor of like, okay, well, what meetings should we be having? When should we be doing planning? How should we be, uh, um, how should we be thinking about initiatives? Um, you know, we, we had less of that. We had more of whatever was the newest idea you know, we should shift and change to it, right? So, um, you know, one of the things Sean and I wanted to start doing when we were back when we were running our, just our Grand Rapids office was we need to get a little better process because we wanted to bring some more people um, uh, into like how we lead and manage things. And to do that, we needed some kind of system. And we looked at it and we said, well, we're engineers, so we don't want to hire someone to teach us. I don't know if that's the right decision or the wrong decision, but that's what we did, right? And uh, and we said, well, we looked at the EOS book, and we're like, well, we do a lot of this stuff already. Like we we do the data management. We looked at the Gazelle's book, the um, the Rockefeller Habits, and we just said, you know what? We need to stop overthinking this and just like like lean into something that we didn't invent, and let's just let's just start doing some of the EOS stuff. So what we started with is we just, we started with just doing the weekly meeting. That's all we did. And just doing the weekly meeting, like quickly made us start to realize, okay, well, what's our, um, what's our scorecard? And then figuring out our scorecard and then doing that um, for a while, like it, it just led to other things. Okay, well, we should start doing quarterly planning. And then when we moved into the, to the CEO job, we started thinking about, okay, well, what's, what's an accountability chart? Like, you know, to your point earlier, uh, Jesse, I think is like, oh, you have this co-CEO model, who reports to who, how does that work? Um, yeah. So that, that so, so for us, we didn't, we didn't jump into EOS, get an implementer, throw everything else away and start doing it. We just said like, let's just start doing one thing. And then we let it like organically, organically grow out. 
Okay. Sounds like you guys have done um, a lot of stuff right. I don't have a better way to, to describe it. it. You know, it's it's you've really thought through the the best ways to tackle some of these these challenges that agency owners struggle with. Let me flip that. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, we've been at it for a long time, so we've made a lot of mistakes well, along the way. You may not appreciate this question. Tell us what <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes was that you made, you know, and kind of how you you approached it and how you, you know, yeah. tackled unmistaking it, <laughs> mm-hmm, fixing it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I like, I don't know, I think, you know, good organizations try new things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, right? And uh, um when they don't work out, like how do you how do you learn from them and move on? Um, so I, I see a lot of things as learning opportunities. I'm a really big fan of uh, um, uh, Colin Powell. You know, late Colin Powell just had this uh, had this quote where he said, "You know, can you give me a solid seven? And what he meant by that was like if if you're like a, a five out of ten on if you should do something, you're too early. Like you should be doing more research, right? And if you're a nine out of ten you're probably too late. Like you waited too long. So can you give me a solid seven, right? Now going forward with a solid seven means you're probably going to be right most of the time, but you're going to be wrong some of the times, right? So I try and I try and always think through that because it's easy. It's easy to wait too long. I think sometimes to try something. Um, so one, one of the, one of the mistakes we made is uh, um, our Detroit office. So we wanted to have uh, multiple offices and we opened our second office in downtown Detroit in, in 2012. So currently we have an office in Grand Rapids, Ann Arbor and Chicago. You'll notice Detroit is not in that mix, but Detroit was the first office we tried to have the second office. Um, so at the time, uh, we really loved the Detroit comeback story. And we, we believed that the fate of Michigan was tied to Detroit, right? So like, that was the point in time where everyone's like, oh, Detroit is like not a great place. Um, but we saw a lot of good up and coming in Detroit. We said we wanted to be part of that story. Um, and to be honest, it was really hard. Uh, we opened an office in downtown Detroit. We struggled to hire senior talent. Um, we didn't establish strong leadership. Lessons learned about, uh, um, you know, doing leadership in pairs. Um, we would have really big Southeast Michigan clients that wanted to hire our entire team. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't sound so bad on the surface, but like they weren't, they weren't looking us to engage us in like kind of full product centric projects. It was more like, we want to hire your whole team to plug into our team. Um, and that wasn't helping us really create the culture we needed. Um, from a business standpoint, we didn't really know how to effectively run multiple offices. Um, and then a year later, we had an opportunity to acquire a small office in Ann Arbor. Um, and what we found is our Ann Arbor office was producing more and, and requiring less help. Um, and, it, and, it, and so we made the hard choice to, to consolidate our Detroit office into our Ann Arbor office. Um, like, it seems simple on the surface, but like when we were going through it, like we were really worried like would our clients see this as a big failure if we had this office and then we didn't anymore. Um, and it was, it was hard, but our, but our internal team, like ultimately understood it and our clients, like they really didn't care. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, if our situation was like a case study in like an HBR book, it'd be an easy choice, but it was, it was really hard to do in reality when you had to be the one to like go and tell people that, Hey, we're going to shut this office down. 
Um, but, you know, I think overall, like the experience taught us that, um, you know, like, like anything entrepreneurial and probably having a, a second office is a pretty entrepreneurial thing for a service company. Um, it just tends to take twice as long and cost twice as much to make it work. And uh, that's what we learned. Um, and we, we got our second office in, in Ann Arbor. It just wasn't in the city we set out to have it in initially. Um, and uh, like I said, we learned, we learned the lesson of, of, of having a robust leadership team. Um, you know, I think we learned the lesson of uh, just how to, how, to grow, how to grow a culture outside of our initial office. And, just, and then just all the logistical pieces, like, how do we financially measure it? You know, how do, um, how do we teach people um, the ways in which we do business, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a lot of growth. Are you back in office now? What's that? Are you back in office now completely? Uh, Not completely. I mean, we were, we were definitely headed down that path and then we got kind of uh, slapped by Delta. So our offices are open. Uh, People are going to our offices, but it's, it's, it's very optional. Um, yeah. right now we're not looking to, to build a, a, a remote team. We're not looking to hire outside of our regions. Um, yeah. it's, uh, you mentioned something earlier that we hear a lot from agency owners is around choosing, you know, choosing the right clients. And, and, and that's a, that's a big one that we hear from people. I know we've talked a lot mm-hmm. about leadership and growth and other things there, but I think that choosing the right clients is that's a mistake we all make and go mm-hmm. yeah, never again. <laughs> yeah. 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 So hard, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a learning experience. And for everyone listening, you will choose the wrong client probably more than once a couple of times. <laughs> sure. 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 And on, on that note, I do want to ask one of the, you know, any, anything like that, that, that you can think of where um, clients have made you drive bananas, like, you know, drive you bananas on how they just messed up with you. Like, you know, where do you think uh, some experience, some ex- uh, example of any instance where, you know, uh, you had just bad experience with a client? I, I think what I've, what I've learned is the clients that it works really well for are like one clients that I feel like are what I would call plain to win. So um, they, they care more about the success of the, the project or product that we're helping them on um, rather than like any kind of like an internal politi- political stuff that's happening within their organization. So I want our team to play to win. So like I want to find like organizations that are, that are also playing to win. Um, I also really, really enjoy clients that, that want to be part of the process that, uh, that value the teammates that, that we put on the team. Like, uh, you know, when we deploy a team to, uh, to a client organization, we we're really like looking for that team to like, you know, kind of take on the, the, um, the purpose of that organization as well and really help them move their product forward. So, you know, our teams are putting in like a lot of love and care to do that. And um, I look for clients that, that not only see that, but they respect that and are excited by that. And that, um, that are really, really plain to win. You know, I think a pet peeve of mine is if, if you have a client that like, it's just clear, they're not, they're not playing to win. the one thing as a business owner or as a co-CEO that keeps you up at night? 
you know, we get a lot of people who worry about sales and your next project and team members and attrition, not to feed uh-huh. you a couple of answers there, but yeah. I'm, I'm guessing no, I, there might be a couple of things on your list based off the conversation today that maybe we haven't thought about. Well, you know, I think those are all like really good ones. Um, but, you know, if I'm perfectly honest, I, I do sleep well most nights. Um, I, I think I have a wonderful business partner, a great management team to help share the load. Um, you know, I, I sometimes I do, I do find myself worrying about like, are people unhappy? Either do they want to leave or are we not being able to find enough work? But when I feel like this sometimes, you know, then I'll, I'll have a talk with Sean and, and he'll, he'll give me a pep talk about, you know, you know, you can't control how others are feeling. You can only like manage your own actions. And then I'll give him the same pep talk like the next week or something like that. And we can, we can calm each other down on these things. Um, you know, and on, on the client side, I think having, having a robust client, uh, client base. So we strive, we strive as an organization to not dedicate more than 20% of our capacity to any given client um, and, and trustful data that helps us understand um, what's going on. That, that can be incredibly helpful and, and, and make us feel good as well. Talking we've about a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Think, I mean, we've covered the, a, a lot of the list. So we were like, okay, let's make sure that we talk about this. You know, for those listening, there's nice and robust prep that happened. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like answers. to ask about future as well. What, what's, what's exciting you about the future? What do you think is coming? What, where do you think is you as a company heading, you as like your industry heading, you know, the type of work that you are doing, anything like, where do you think you are going? I think the industry is at like a really interesting moment, right? And I think a lot of it's powered by like things that have been enabled by COVID um, or, or maybe, um, maybe more acceptable because of COVID. Um, and I'm, I'm really starting to see more so than ever, like a split between like a full product, a team that does like a full product offering and like, you know, what I would call like expert staff or team augmentation, right? And like, we're in this place right now where everyone needs help. All these clients need help. Um, so I, I think like that staff augmentation model is really strong. And I think you can get really good rates with it right now too, like especially with, um, with high tech companies. And it's, and what's interesting is like, I, I don't know about you, Ruben, I know you're uh, a, a developer as well. You know, 15 years ago, uh, like staff on gigs weren't, weren't all that great, right? Like you felt like the, the clients really didn't know how to do tech yet. And, you know, you're in some cubicle somewhere writing PSQL code for like an insurance company or something like that. You know, I think they've come a long way. Like I think a lot of these technical clients they have really smart people leading their teams. They're doing good agile stuff. They're picking good technologies. So like that's, that's all good. Right. And, and I think on the other side, like this offering the full product experience is harder. Um, but ironically, it might not pay as much as even that team augmentation model does right now. I think because it's harder for non-technical companies to understand, you know, just where the market is. And, and I think because of this, and, and as more people push to remote, I'm seeing lots of professional services firm lean heavily into the staff augmentation, team augmentation work. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a fine choice. Um, like the market's certainly pulling them in that direction. But I, you know, I, I, think, I think for us, I wanna lean the other direction. I wanna lean more into the product work. I wanna lean more into the, 
the work that requires, um, you know, the design dev integration, the work that requires good product management. And that's work that we've always focused on. And it, it like, it makes me passionate to get better at it because I, because I feel like even though the market is like pulling us in one direction, I think it's, I think that these are business cycles. And like, when I look at our team, I find that our team is, is more happy, more engaged when they have that kind of more autonomy around the project. So even though, it, even though it's harder, even though you might have a customer who doesn't, who doesn't get it as much, or you have to do more explaining or more justification, it's like you have, you have the control of that, of that product and you can, you, can help, you can help really dictate success. And that's what gets me really excited. Like I wanna, I wanna lean into that work. I wanna continue to get better at that work. I wanna do more of that work as an organization. That's so bold. You know, that's really strong statement. I think that is so cool to hear from you as well. Like, you know, everybody else is doing that, but I want to do this and I'll continue to do this. I'll continue to motivate my team to just do this and go in that path. That's pretty, you know, awesome to hear. Um, you know, so all the best, man. I mean, it's just so, so <laughs> awesome to hear. Um, cool. Yeah, just you had one last thing, I know. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about your business. We've talked a lot about some of the um, the awesome things that you've done. We've talked about how you've got into it. We've talked about goals and where you want to go. Let's talk about you for a few minutes, a little bit. Yeah. You know, tell us a little bit about you know about you, and maybe we'll start with this question. You know, when you were a little kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, great question. I probably wanted to be like a professional basketball player, but you know, then I realized that like my basketball skills peaked in like fifth grade. So I wasn't going to cut it. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it's one of my favorite questions, especially when you're conducting mm -hmm. interviews with people, but it's a fun one to hear and go, okay, where'd you start? Where'd you end up? And yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about, I know we, you, you went to, you got your MBA at UMass Lowell. So we're having a fun mm -hmm. chat about Lowell here. You mm -hmm. have your mm -hmm. uh, BSc from in computer science at Grand Valley State mm -hmm. University. You know, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, uh, why Lowell is actually the one I really want to ask, to be honest yeah, with yeah. you. Again, we're from Massachusetts yeah. for those listening. It's Lowell's an interesting place. So I, I'm curious to hear what, what drew you to that particular area outside of, you know, sure. Prince spaghetti. Yeah. So um, my journey there is kind of interesting. So I was, I was a pretty traditional student. Um, you know, when I first went to school, I'm like, I'm going to go into something business related, maybe accounting. And then I changed my major to CS like right before, right before school started. And I'm so happy I did. Like I, I just really loved um, computer science, solving problems. And when I was at Grand Valley, I met Carl Erickson, who's the founder of Atomic Object. Um, mm -hmm. he, wasn't, he wasn't running Atomic then. He was a, a professor at Grand Valley. And he had organized an exchange trip um, to Sweden. So I had saw that there was this information night. I'm like, I'm going to go to that information night and find out about it because I I'd always wanted to do an exchange and you know as a as a freshman in college I'm like that's pretty like like it's not as exotic as like going to China um but it's but it's definitely out of my comfort zone I mean, like it's still I you know cool <laughs> yeah it was super cool and so I I met Carl there and we talked and uh then he sent me a postcard from Sweden uh to my dorm that said like you can be here next year come see me and so I just got to know Carl. Um, he became my advisor. And uh, um, when uh, 
I set up this exchange. And at the end of that year, he's like, so I'm not gonna be your advisor anymore because I'm gonna do this dot-com startup with uh, um, one of my ex-students. Like, oh, okay. And he's like, well, come to think of it, what are you doing this summer? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like working at this, this factory that puts, I put parts in the box for like car washes. It's like, well, do you want to write some programs? So I, I started working for him. And at the time he was, he was creating like kind of a dot-com 1.0 startup. And it was, it was completely meta, right? Like we were, we were making software to make it easier to write software. Um, and it was like classic.com 1.0. We had some, we had some VC money. We had some smart people, um, but we had no client. We had no product market fit. So like that just fizzled out and like atomic grew out of that. Um, so as I go through college, I, you know, I work at atomic as an intern. I, I took a job full time after, um, after I graduated, we were really, really small at the time. And then, uh, um, uh, about about a, a year or two after I graduated, I took a job out east with, with actually with a client of ours who had an office out there, um, a product company. Um, they are called X-Rite. They're in the color management space. And uh, they were in Tewksbury. So I, I went out there. I worked with a great team out there. Um, I learned an awful lot about um, product companies, uh, like the full life cycle of software, um, but when I was out there, I, I just was always still interested in business. So that's when I did the, um, the MBA at, at UMass Lowell. It was, it was like conveniently there. Um, so I would just take night classes. Um, and we, so when we first moved out to Boston, like I, we had known nothing about the area, right? So like originally we lived in like the, um, the like Tewksbury area. And then we eventually bought a, um, like a tiny little, uh, um, loft style condo um in Lowell because that was like the hip thing to do um my wife my wife did uh teaching out there and it was it was an awesome experience we were out there for three years um and then uh you know as we as time went on we kind of recognized that like we both like each other's parents and they live on in West Michigan and we wanted to start a family and like if we didn't if we didn't make the move back we'd never make the move back um as we kind of like just our life started getting set up more and more in Massachusetts. So we were back and Atomic was nice enough to take me back. That's nice. And Lowell is, uh, for those listening, it's a cool, it's a mill town. So there's a lot of cool architecture. It's just a different kind of, you don't think Massachusetts, New England and East like mill situation. So it was a cool, we had a fun chat before the recording today. So, yeah. well, this was, this was a great conversation, Mike. Um, we appreciate, you know, we've been chatting for quite a while. We appreciate your time and, and your Likewise. yeah, it was a, on a lot of topics. So where the, the list I have for those listening, where you can find Mike and atomic object is atomicobject.com, um, your company website, your company LinkedIn as well. And then you can find Mike on LinkedIn uh, also. Um, so thank you so much. You know, that's it, everyone. If you've learned something today, laugh, tell someone about the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.